0: Welcome back to A Life Beyond Sport. My name is Nick Keller and I'm your host today. I'm the founder of Beyond Sport and each week I get to sit with some amazing people from public life and hear about their life's journey through their three most meaningful sports moments. So we had our Highlight Clip Show a couple of weeks ago taking the best bits of the last year and we didn't have space for this superb story as told by Jeremy Thompson, the complete legendary broadcaster, multi-award winning um, legend of the media world. Jeremy told the story of his 1984, um, a year where so much um, was packed in. Jeremy started off by covering the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, a true landmark event for the Olympic movement. He then was sent to India for the Test Series against England. And what he ended up doing was covering the assassination of Indra Gandhi, the industrial disaster that was Bhopal, the assassination of a deputy high commissioner, Percy Norris, and some riots thrown in there as well. He covered some cricket along the way. So sit back and listen to one of the world's best storytellers telling a remarkable story.
1: So I had a busy five years being ITN Sports Correspondent and perhaps one of the biggest early memories was 1984 and the LA Olympics, which was, reminded me, I guess, not for the first time, that sport is not just sport. Sport is life, sport is politics, sport is culture, sport is conflict, sport is everything. And the LA Olympics was mired in controversy. Um, I ended up going over there a couple of months earlier because Libya decided to pull out in Iran. Uh, because they'd fallen out badly or there were ongoing fallouts with the United States over sort of military spats and trade wars and so on and then pretty much Soviet Union the whole of the old eastern bloc decided to boycott the Games in retaliation really for the US boycott of the 1980 Olympics so we had a Games that was I seem to be spending more time at the start talking about politics than anything else. Um, And on top of that, ITV at the time had won the rights to cover those Olympics. It used to be, you know, nip and tuck between Mm. the BBC and ITV. Turned out that on the eve of it, uh, there was a dispute that went so deep that the unions decided to black the Olympic Games. And so none of the ITV sports team who would have been giving you your round-the-clock coverage turned up. So it's left us, me, the ITN sports correspondent, in effect to try covering the entire Olympic Games for an entire network with a couple of other reporters sort of helping out. So it was perhaps one of the hardest (laughs) couple of months I've ever had. It was quite extraordinary. I remember sort of covering... Commentating live on a hundred metres final, and then running off to a hockey match which Great Britain were involved in, and then racing down to the rowing where Redgrave was about to get the first of his five Olympic rowing goals and then racing back to something else, and it was kind of—it felt like it was twenty-four hours a day, non-stop. In between that, there were some amazing events. I mean, there was Ronald Reagan, the president of the time, opening the games. It was full of glitz and glamour as only America can do it. It was way, way over the top. It had spacemen flying over the stadium and so on. And then on top of that, of course, there were just quite scintillating sporting events. There was Carl Lewis winning four golds. 100 meters, 200 meters relay in the long jump. There was Ed Moses in the 400 meters hurdles, who was a supreme athlete. Daley Thompson for Great Britain won his second Olympic decathlon gold. Ovid won two, his second 1500 meters gold in successive games. And there was this great showdown between he and Ovid, and then Ovid was taken ill and I remember racing around hospitals trying to get the story of what had happened to Ovid and then of course just to top it all off there was the amazing Zola Blood Bud the little barefoot Mm -hmm. South African girl who was running under the Great Britain flag um, up against the the fantastic Mary Decker um, and clashing on the track and both falling out and them being raced off to hospitals and, and all the controversy of that. It just seemed to be one story after another. It was the quite the most amazing games you could ever imagine. And the basket, the U.S. basketball dream team, there was Mary Lou Retton, one of the greatest gymnasts of all time. It went on and on. And by the time of it, I mean, I, I was, they almost poured me on a plane home. I was... Uh, I was completely exhausted, but it was hell of a fun, and hell, of, hell of a to ride.
0: It sounds quite remarkable. And, and the funny thing is that you have always, you always come across so polished, but obviously behind the scene, it seems like it was pretty chaotic.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Followed by, you know, to round it all off, there was the, the there's always on the, There's always a media city, which is away from the stadiums where everything is. And everybody decided they'd work so hard that everybody, all the broadcasters in the world who were there, would have a a media final farewell flourish party, which a lot of it I can't even describe to you. It was such bedlam. Um, There were several countries who come from... um, let's say, narco-aware areas of the world. (laughs)
0: So
1: this place seemed to be covered in white dust apart from everything else. There was more booze than you've ever seen. There was more dancing, more partying. Everybody seemed to have their own band. And it was sort of one of those things that was mental and went on for about 48 hours. And by the end of it, we were all completely wiped out. So it took me about two months to recover from those Olympics.
0: Well, it says it says a lot about your resilience there, um, Jeremy. <laughs> and it, that was a busy year for you, because it seems like 84 was a year where you didn't rest a great deal.
1: You're so right. Yes, I, I managed to get a bit of shut eye. And then I was standing in the ITN newsroom in Wells Street in London one day when uh, the foreign editor got up and said, uh indira gandhi's been assassinated anybody got a visa for india (laughs) (laughs) and so i said well i have because i was about to go and cover the england cricket tour as sports correspondent so the foreigners said right get your bag go straight to heathrow we'll get you a ticket by the time you get there and the next thing i knew i was in the the streets of New Delhi amid total mayhem in the sectarian violence that had been sparked by Indira Gandhi's assassination. So here's me, a sport and cricket correspondent, dealing with armed insurrection and burning Guruwara temples because the it was two Sikh bodyguards that had assassinated Indira Gandhi in a long-running saga that involved the Golden Temple in Amritsar their holy of holies and uh, the fact they felt that she had restricted their ability to worship there and that there had been a Sikh rumblings for a long time and her two, two of her favorite bodyguards had eventually been persuaded to take her out. So the country was in some mayhem when I got there. So I suddenly found myself not being a cricket correspondent but being, um, a war correspondent on the streets of New Delhi, which was eye-opening, my first proper bit of, you know, conflict, civil conflict. That quietened down a bit, and I got on with the job of being cricket correspondent flew out to Mumbai for the first Test match. David Gower's team taking on a very good Indian side. A few days before the Test, we were all invited to The team and the journalists, because it was all much friendlier and closer in those days, were all invited to a a reception given by the British Deputy High Commissioner Percy Norris at his residence. So we went and had a super party there and mingled with the players as we did. A lot of them were good friends and still are uh, after all these years. um, And thought nothing of it until I was woken very early the next morning with a phone call saying Percy Norris has been assassinated. And the Deputy High Commissioner had been shot by somebody who, when his chauffeur-driven car, stopped a traffic light, somebody leant in the window and fired two shots and fatally wounded him. So I suddenly found myself being a crime correspondent. Me and my BBC counterpart, I was the ITN sports correspondent then, raced around town without a camera crew, because our camera crews were still en route, ready for the test match two days hence. We managed to rustle up a... Indian TV outside broadcast crew, which involves 16 men with outside broadcast cameras, and we drove round town with them in a long bus and managed to do this extraordinary story. Um, we were none the wiser about the, the reasons. It was many months later before it turned out that the assassination was the work of a Palestinian splinter group uh, led by a man called Abu Nidal, um, but none of that we knew at the time. But it almost killed off that, not only Percy Norris, but killed off the cricket tour as well. But foreign office persuaded the MCC, as it was then, to go ahead with the cricket tour. They played the test at the Wankode Stadium. We covered that with rather old-fashioned equipment and sent our stories back to England. England were completely wiped out by a young leg spinner called Laxman Shivarama Krishnan, who got, 12 wickets and completely bamboozled England to defeat. Um, And I was about to move back to Delhi for the second test when I got another call saying, there's been an industrial accident at a place called Bhopal. Mm. I said, never heard of it. They said, well, it's in Madhya Pradesh. I said, I'm none the wiser still. Madhya Pradesh is middle Pradesh, one of the central states in India. So they said, get there, it sounds bad. So five, six, seven hundred miles later, two flights, a ten-hour train journey, a ten-hour taxi drone uh, ride, I emerged in this benighted city. Uh, it's hard to describe. What had happened is that Union Carbide, an American-owned pesticide plant, had started, unbeknown to anybody, leaking and seeping toxic gases over a city of half a million people by the time i got there thousands were dead and we were literally walking through shanty towns around the factory of dead and if they weren't dead they were coughing there was this cacophony of sound this dismal miserable tragic pitiful sound of people coughing and what they they told us through our translators is that the gas, which was silent, invisible, insidious, had seeped out into the town, and anybody who inhaled it basically ended up with burning lips and burning mouth and nose and lungs, and many died and many were badly disabled with it, and it was an awful, awful sight. I mean, it is still one of the worst industrial disasters the world has ever seen. Mm. Um, And this out-of-the-way place with not really the facilities to cope with it, still not known, nobody will really admit what the official figures are. I I would think at least 20,000 people must have died, maybe more. But we were there for a week and every night the mire the pyres of mass cremation would burn throughout the night more and more hundreds of bodies being brought out to be cremated on the pyres um, it, it was a weird scene and of course we also felt um, at risk as well we we had you know no gas masks we had to wrap scarves around our throat and try not to eat any contaminated food we were eating basically what came out of tins or what came out of bottles of water. Um, but it was a it was an extraordinary story to cover and one that then also sort of buzzed around the world. And there were actually very few foreign journalists who managed to get there. So uh, I was one of the few who had a frontline seat at this extraordinary story. Anyway, that wrapped up and they said ITN said right okay done that get to Delhi there's a second test match so the next thing I found myself doing talk about the sublime to the ridiculous mm-hmm. I've gone from you know mass deaths uh, this, this awful sight in Bhopal to a second test match uh, in New Delhi which David Gower's team amazingly won against the odds so the series is won all so I'm thinking I'm getting back to the Test series now. Uh, And then London rang again and said, Right, well, now Indira Gandhi's assassinated. There's an election campaign. Looks like her son might win it. So get on the campaign trail. So I spent the next month going around doing political stories. Um, So I'd been a war correspondent, a crime correspondent, a sports correspondent, and now I was being a political correspondent, going the length and breadth of the country, following Rajiv Gandhi and some of the other main contenders around the country ended up managing to pull a fantastic stunt, I thought. I persuaded the ITN that we ought to try and film the highest polling station in the country, which was over Christmas. So we flew up to Srinagar in Kashmir and I got chatting with some local guys on the plane and they insisted that we they cooked us a traditional Kashmiri lunch for our Christmas dinner on the houseboat they owned on Lake Dal, which was quite stunning. <laughs> surrounded by snow-clad mountains, it was wonderful. A short break, and then we were off up the mountain, six, eight thousand feet, to a little village which had the highest polling station, where we watched people tramped through the snow and cast their votes, and fox popped them about who they were going to vote for. And then I drove down to Jammu, the other capital of Jammu and Kashmir state, and interviewed the former Maharaj of Kashmir, which was fun. And then went back for election day. And Rajiv Gandhi won the election, I interviewed, I got the first Western TV interview with the new Prime Minister, which was great. Then we did another couple of test matches, and then I flew home three months later, having been a sports correspondent, crime correspondent, war correspondent, Mm -hmm. disasters correspondent, political correspondent. And as well, I've been away so long that the foreign editor wrote me a telex, as you got telexes in those days rather than, rather than messages or WhatsApps, and saying, um, you seem to be enjoying it so much out there and you've been out there so long, we thought you were setting up a Delhi bureau. Anyway, I got home three months later having realised that I was now a perfect Indian all-rounder. I've done a bit of everything. I realised I realized no story was going to be beyond my reach.
0: What a brilliant story from Jeremy Thompson regaling all that happened in that year, 1984. It was great to have him on the show. If you enjoyed it, go and listen to the whole pod with Jeremy. It ended up being one of our longest. There was very little we can cut out of it. Um, he is a brilliant storyteller, as you expect him to be. Also, if you want to listen to that highlights package again, uh, please do and listen. It has likes of Tony Blair, Ebony Rafe and Brent, Will Greenwood, Peter Frankapan and a host of other fantastic guests that we've had on Life Beyond Sports. Um, So I hope you've enjoyed that, uh, whatever your short run or short commute. And look forward to interviewing some more fantastic guests over the course of the next year. Thanks for joining.